Rhonda at the Bedside, a series brought to you by the American Thoracic Society Critical Care Assemblies. In this series, we tackle frequently encountered problems in the ICU by presenting a case to an expert in the field. Awesome. Um, so we're back at the bedside. My name is uh, Matt Stutz, uh, and I'm a critical care physician at Cook County Health in Chicago, Illinois. And I am honored to be joined by Dr. Uh, Matt Semler, who is a assistant professor of medicine and bioinformatics in the Division of Allergy, Pulmonary, and Critical Care Medicine at Vanderbilt University. Hi, Dr. Semler. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Could you tell us a little about yourself and your research? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm uh, always eager to support the ATS and glad to appreciate the invitation to come talk a little bit. And um, I'm uh, trained in internal medicine and then pulmonary and critical care medicine at Vanderbilt. And I'm now on faculty there. And my sole research interest places where we would have one patient and you might treat them differently than me for these common therapies like fluid management or innovation or mechanical ventilation. We don't know which of those is right, but we can't both be right. And so our job is to figure it out. And we try and figure that out using clinical trials through this research network called the Pragmatic Critical Care Research Group. That's awesome. We'll dive right into the case. So we have a 64-year-old gentleman. He has a past medical history of uh, CHF. His left ventricular function is about 45%. Uh, no diastolic dysfunction noted. He's got CKD with a baseline creatinine around 2 and also has COPD. He's coming into the emergency department because he's got some erythema and pain in his left lower extremity, and it's just been getting a little worse. He's been starting to have some more fevers at home and, and thought he should get checked out. So his evaluation in the ED is significant. Gentlemen, no distress, pretty erythematous and swollen left uh, lower extremity um, that's tender to touch. And his white blood cell count is uh, 22. Uh, it's left shifted. His hemoglobin is 10. His platelets are 324. His basic metabolic panel is notable for a sodium of 126. His potassium is elevated to 5.9. He's got a low bicarbonate of 11. And his creatinine is uh, 3.2 up from his baseline. His vitals are notable for being febrile to uh, 39.1. His heart rate is uh, elevated at 132 beats per minute. And his blood pressure is a little soft at uh, 84 over 40. And respiratory rate's 32. And he was actually saturating in the mid-80s on room air. So he got put on some nasal cannula around 4 liters. is up to 94%. So the emergency department is managing the patient. And they start him on uh, broad-spectrum antibiotics and give him a 30 cc's per kilo uh, fluid bolus, a, a lactated ringers. His blood pressure is still a little soft, so, so they're calling you up in the ICU for, for admission. So just right off the bat, Dr. Semler, how do you feel that the management is going so far? Yeah, thanks for presenting that. So this is a 64-year-old with comorbidity significant for heart failure and for CKD coming in with what sounds like sepsis and septic shock potentially uh, from likely that left lower extremity cellulitis. And I think his initial management uh, of the administration of around somewhere around two liters of IV fluid and then uh, broad spectrum antibiotics. Uh, it sounds totally appropriate. And I think at this stage, the team is likely thinking about source control, right? Is this a surgical infection? Is this something that's going to be treated just with antibiotics? And also thinking about what steps are next. So I think for somebody like this who um, has probably had decreased PO intake, 
has inflammation and relative hypovolemia. Initial opening gambit of two liters of crystalloid is probably a good move. And we could talk about why crystalloid rather than colloid or which crystalloid. But I think so far this sounds like it's going well. Jump right into that. Uh, you mentioned crystalloid, colloids. You know, I've read about starches as well. Um, can you give us a summary of your interpretation of that literature? Yeah, so I think let's start with, with the easiest questions and work to the harder questions. So the easiest questions and the places we have the most data are, are which fluid, not how much fluid. So which fluid is easier? And particularly, should I be using colloid or should I be using crystalloid? And particularly, should I be using semi-synthetic colloids? So that you all probably are familiar with that data on the use of starches and that's particularly hydroxyethyl starch, which appears to increase the risk of AKI and death, especially for patients with sepsis. So that's the easy, simple story. We don't even have to talk about that. There's no reason to be using that, especially in the context of sepsis. The tougher story is whether there's a role for albumin and the physiology of why there might be is that you know, albumin maintains oncotic pressure in health. It uh, does all these other things like bind nitric oxide and prevent lipid peroxidation. But um, the SAFE trial of albumin all comers to the ICU uh, and the Albios trial looking specifically at sepsis uh, weren't definitive in establishing albumin as improving mortality, although there's some interesting signals there in sepsis. And albumin has traditionally been much more expensive than crystalloid. So the current recommendations and, and I think many people's practice is to use crystalloid preferentially in the treatment of these patients with sepsis, which leaves you with the question of which crystalloid and uh, you know, the two basic crystalloids we have available are 0.9% sodium chloride or saline. And that's uh, you know, very simple. It's just 154 millimoles per liter of sodium, 150 more, four millimoles per liter of chloride. Uh, and the other one is so-called balanced crystalloid, like lactated ringers or plasmolite. And those are just designed to take out some of the chloride, replace it with some sort of buffer, um, like bicarbonate or lactate or gluconate or acetate, with the idea of making it more comparable in content to what's in the plasma. And those two choices, saline and balanced crystalloids, have been available and used in practice for more than 100 years. But until about five years ago, we didn't have any data to tell us which of those might be best. And that story is still evolving, but we now have multiple large randomized trials, SALT, SMART, SALT-ED, PLUS, SPLIT, uh, BASICS. And without going into too much depth, those trials overall seem to show a very small benefit in patient outcomes in favor of balanced crystalline generally, but that benefit seems to be potentially a little bit bigger among patients with sepsis. So my as somebody who always used saline, I was an internal physician, medicine physician, um, my, my bias has now switched and I, I definitely preferentially use lactate ringers or plasmolite for the treatment of a patient like this, especially for a patient with sepsis who already has acute kidney injury, who's uh, already has metabolic acidosis and who's you know at risk for AKI and mortality. While you were explaining that, I'm wondering, you know, back when I was in, in medical school, you know, an internal medicine residency, which, which was more than five years ago, uh, you know, I was told, you know, if you're on medicine, uh, you know, you do normal saline. And if you're on surgery, you know, you do a balanced uh, salt solution like uh, lactated ringers or plasmolite. Was that what you were taught to? 
Yeah, absolutely. That was what we observed in the hospital. I think this is one of those things that uh, kind of flew under the radar. And I would say now looking back on that, um, that strikes me as crazy that there's anything in medicine where we think it's okay for the same patient to get a different treatment by two different physicians and they can just argue over it for decades and not make any attempt to figure out which is better, right? So I think that was definitely our experience and that probably shouldn't be the experience. We, we have some obligation to figure it out and just use the better one. Right, right. And unfortunately for us internal medicine doctors, we'll have to concede that it seems like so far the, the surgeons may have been right there. Yeah, that's hard to say. I'm going to let you say that instead of me. <laughs> I will take that. I will take that on. Um, very good. Uh, okay. Well, well, you told us a little bit uh, about the differences between uh, balanced uh, solutions and, and normal saline. Uh, you know, in this patient particularly, I'm just I'm just wondering. You know, the patient was hyponatremic. You know, his, his sodium was 126, and and you mentioned that 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 normal saline uh, has more sodium in it than than a balanced salt solution. And so, you know, could we be hurting the patient who has hyponatremia in this case? Yeah, it's a good question, which is to say, what would the effect of administering this fluid be on the serum sodium? I, I would bet if you measured urinosum in this patient, they're uh, retaining fluid because they're hypovolemic, that that, uh, that correcting the hypovolemia went up that serum sodium in and of itself, regardless of the composition of those fluids. So I am not in any way worried about a sodium of 126 as being a contraindication to uh, a fluid like lactate ringers. Right, right. That makes sense. Um, well, well, how about the potassium? I mean, it's 5.9. I mean, I, I look at 5.9. I, I start to get, I start to get a little nervous. You know, I start to reach for uh, potassium lowering agents. And you know, if I was looking at the the, the list of ingredients, uh, you know, there's there's a little bit of potassium in, in some balanced solutions. Uh, could could that be leading to more hyperkalemia and more arrhythmias, or um, will that be a problem? It's a great question. It's something people have worried about for a long time. The answer is no. Uh, I think we can pretty definitively say that now. And the reason for that is at least two things. One of which is that <clears throat> when a fluid is designed to have a simpler, similar composition to plasma, it tends to bring uh, electrolyte abnormalities that are in either direction back toward the normal, right? So if the fluid has four of potassium in it, and the potassium is eight, it brings it back closer to four. If it has uh, four potassium in it and the potassium is two, it tends to bring it back closer to four. So these, uh, that's step one is that even conceptually, that small amount of potassium is not likely to be raising this serum potassium concentration. But the bigger factor here is that um, saline, which is one of your choices, has no bicarbonate in it, strong ion difference of zero, and it causes a metabolic acidosis, which shifts potassium out of cells and into the serum, raising potassium levels, whereas balanced crystalloids like lactated ringers have buffers in them that increase the serum bicarbonate concentration and shift potassium into cells. And uh, so every time this has been looked at, uh, largely in studies of renal transplant, but also in these now big trials, including DKA and other settings, the risk of hyperkalemia is either higher with saline or not different between the fluids. Wow, that's wild. That's a that's a 
awesome physiologic explanation to just put this to rest. Is there is there any level of an electrolyte uh, that would that would trend you to use uh, normal saline? Only in the context of a clinical condition. So, for example, a patient with traumatic brain injury and an elevated intracranial pressure, a patient with a subarachnoid hemorrhage for which you know, administration of sodium is part of the treatment. I think in those instances, uh, hyponatremia or a hypotonic uh, state would be an indication for saline. Um, but I think uh, outside of that, the just because something shows up red in the electronic health record uh, is, is just not usually enough to prompt um, tr- changing to saline, particularly because in the trials, in those subgroups of patients, those with hyperkalemia, those with metabolic acidosis, those with metabolic alkalosis, those with hyponatremia, there hasn't been any suggestion in any of those groups that saline was preferentially beneficial in terms of the patient outcomes. Uh, so I feel pretty reassured about that. Super helpful. Just put all those those electrolyte concerns uh, uh, to the wayside there. Um, now let's dive into the, the patient's past medical history a little bit. You know, he, he has two conditions with um, both heart failure and chronic kidney disease that I think folks can often, you know, be hesitant to give fluids. Um, you know, he got 30 cc's per kilo. Are you worried that might be too much for him? So I, this is an important question. So switching from which fluid to how much fluid. And in this early phase, there's really not a ton of information to guide us. So I, um, there's two ways this could go. One of which is with heart failure and and adrenal disease or CKD, the chances of developing fluid overload are greater. So maybe you'd want to use less fluid. The second is that work by Vinnie Liu and others have suggested that because patients with those diagnoses, clinicians are a little bit shy about fluid, they actually receive less fluid and perhaps have worse outcomes because they're under resuscitated, right? So those are the two things I'm balancing in my mind. So I think it sounds to me like this is a perfectly appropriate initially initial resuscitation for this patient, even keeping in mind the degree of his heart failure and CKD. But I'm mindful of that oxygen requirement. This is not a patient who has a pneumonia or a direct cause of lung injury. So I am worried, is this developing ARDS secondary to the cellulitis or is this patient starting to develop uh, pulmonary edema from the IV fluid. So that is something certainly watch carefully. But I think the question of what's the right volume of resuscitation for these patients, are they systematically under resuscitated because of these diagnoses, is something that I hope trials like secondary analyses of the basics trial of faster versus slower fluid and analyses of the ongoing Clovers trial of um, restrictive versus liberal fluid resuscitation in early sepsis may give us some better information to go on. He, he's got appropriate antibiotics in the emergency department. Um, they were worried about the, the swelling, and so they did a point-of-care ultrasound to investigate for DVT, which was negative. Uh, they actually outlined the erythema of his lower extremity, um, and they called surgery to evaluate him for signs of a necrotizing skin and soft tissue infection. And thankfully, the, the area erythema is still within that marking, and, and surgery's seen him, and you know they thanked you for giving them a call. And also for uh, giving lactated ringers, and they don't don't think that there's an indication to go to the OR right now. Um, and you know he arrives up into the ICU. He's he's still mentating, but he's he's not totally making 
sense. He, he's answering questions, but they're short and they're not always, you know, the most appropriate answers to the question asked. His vital signs when he hits the unit are a heart rate of 132, his blood pressure is uh, 89 over 42. You know, the resident comes up to ask, and asks you, you know, are, are we going to put a line and start pressors on this patient or, or are we going to give more fluids? Um, how, how would you approach this, Dr. Semler? Yeah, so this patient is moving through his clinical course in a way that we recognize, right? This is, uh, and what strikes me about the, this current stage is he has several signs, the altered mental status, the um, maybe decreased urine output that are worrisome for inadequate perfusion. I think you'd also want to check his capillary refill, and you might be wondering what the lactate is or what the SVO2 would look like. And so I think this patient's in a tough phase of the disease. So they talk about four phases of fluid resuscitation, right? Rescue, uh, uh, optimization, stabilization, and de-escalation, right? So this patient is not in rescue. They're not about to have a cardiac arrest, but they're in that very challenging optimization phase where you're basically asking the question of, if I give further fluid, is that going to have physiologic effects that are beneficial? And will those physiologic effects translate into... Uh, better clinical outcomes. And the physiology we're thinking about here is a couple of things, one of which is the perfusion pressure, right? Are we getting enough perfusion to these organs or is that why they're dysfunctioning? Um, and, and so that equation is the mean arterial pressure minus the right atrial pressure is that perfusion pressure. And that basically is adds up to the heart rate times the stroke volume times the systemic vascular resistance. And what you're asking in part is what's the primary problem here? What can we treat? So giving IV fluid increases the stroke volume potentially in some instances and giving vasopressors increases the systemic vascular resistance. And the primary problem in sepsis is a problem of systemic vascular resistance. So the most intuitive treatment, if you were starting from scratch, would probably be vasopressors here. But uh, for historical reasons and, and um, because of some of the uh, relative and true intravascular volume depletion and sepsis, our focus tends to be on IV fluid in the hopes that it'll increase stroke volume. And so in answering the question, should we give him more IV fluid before vasopressors? One question that naturally comes up is would doing so increase the stroke volume, right? So if this is a patient who is, um, when you're thinking about the Frank Starling curve in which that x-axis is uh, intracardiac pressure preload and the y-axis is stroke volume, your question mentally might be, are we over on the left part of that where giving more fluid increases intracardiac pressure and that results in this big jump in stroke volume? Or is this patient who, by the way, has heart failure already in the middle or on the right of that where giving more fluid will cost us in terms of pulmonary edema and organ edema without even increasing stroke volume, which would be the only benefit, one of the few benefits we were thinking of here, of increasing cardiac output, increasing oxygen delivery to the tissues, and maybe mitigating hypoxemia, hypoxia, if that's the cause of the organ dysfunction, altered mental status, the low urine output. So I think the question being framed is basically, is it valuable to measure the patient's response to fluid or to estimate what it would be? Uh, ways of doing that include 
passive leg raise where you let fluid from the veins of the legs flow back into the heart to see, and then you have to have a real-time measurement of stroke volume to see if it increases 10 or 15%. If it does, maybe you give more fluid. There are ultrasound measures of that somewhat and uh, pulse pressure variation or stroke volume variation. Those are all variants on that idea of if I give the next increment of fluid, will the cardiac output respond? And I'll say clinically, um, those measures are used very variably in different settings. There's no evidence yet that using those measures improves outcomes for patients. So I clinically don't tend to use those measures that I make a judgment of uh, from the history, physical labs, and you know uh, uh, any measurements that are available of whether initial fluid is likely to be helpful without just specific measures of fluid responsiveness the vast majority of the time. Um, and so for this patient who's gotten around in the range of two liters, 30 cc's per kilogram, um, I think the most I would be thinking about giving this patient is another liter. And I probably wouldn't. I would probably initiate vasopressors at this point. That's partly uh, based on the history of congestive heart failure and CKD, partly based on having already been on four liters despite no, um, no direct lung injury. That's awesome. I really like that that really thoughtful thoughtful approach. You know, I think you you really address the 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 real life challenges in evaluating you know fluid responsiveness that I think all of us can resonate with at the bedside and and trying to use uh, maneuvers with passive leg raise that are practically difficult to perform in the ICU when they when they just came up from the ED when they're getting settled et cetera. Um, or, you know, you have, uh, you know, have an ultrasound and you have an IVC exam, you have variable respiratory effort and, and a patient who's sick and breathing 32 times a minute. I think just acknowledging those limitations is, is really um, important. And I think there's also probably some practice variability out there. I, I, I was kind of relieved to hear your approach of, of just the physical exam and, and the history and, and, and going with that. You know, I, I do tend to use some IVC ultrasound um, in my practice, um, but I don't, you know, I don't bet the farm on it um, all the time and also use the, the history and exam. And then also the data of how did the patient respond to fluids before, not that it'll always, you know, tell you what they're going to do in the future, but at least you have that, have that data point in your, in your decision-making. Broader, which is that I think if you look back at the history of critical care, um, it is characterized by interventions that improved physiologic measures, but worsened patient outcomes. So high tidal volume ventilation improved oxygenation, PaO2, improved ventilation, you know, PaCO2 and pH, and it made patients more likely to die. Oscillatory ventilation for ARDS improved all of those intermediate outcomes and made patients more likely to die. So I think it, my framing around measures of fluid responsiveness or other judgments based on physiology has that in the background, which is to say that I think we have a real responsibility to make sure these measurements are not, our interventions aren't just improving intermediate measures of physiology and worsening outcomes on the other end. So I have a little bit of my hesitancy about really rapidly adopting measures of fluid responsiveness. And even the concept of fluid responsiveness comes from that history of uh, the ICU being a wicked learning environment. One last question for you, Dr. Semler. Uh, how, what's your feeling on maintenance fluids in the ICU? You know, this guy's, he's not safe to eat. He can't swallow. Uh, would you, would you 
park his his fluid somewhere 75 100 125 uh what would what, what's your practice my practice around maintenance fluids is not to use maintenance fluids um i think i uh people vary a lot in this i actually slept for almost eight hours last night and didn't take anything the whole time. And despite that, no one had to start IV fluids on me. Our bodies are pretty good at regulating fluid and electrolytes. And especially if patients, um, you know, initiating trophic feeds or other things is reasonable. But I, I think, um, you know, starting someone on, you know, 150 or 200 milliliters per minute of an IV fluid that often gets left on for days can really contribute to pretty significant volume overload and edema. And there's just not evidence that just, there's not been really good research on maintenance fluids, but there's no evidence to suggest that it's helpful. And so I treat fluids like a drug. So if a patient is hypernatremic, I'll give them free water. If they we need to uh, treat potassium or any other electrolyte abnormality, we can give the treatments necessary to treat that. Uh, but generally don't uh, use, uh, wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, give maintenance lytics. And so I'm not going to give maintenance fluids either. That, that's my approach to that. And I know that that differs from some, but I think increasingly treat fluids have side effects, fluids. So using them in a targeted manner when there's a problem that you're treating tends to be my approach. Awesome. Uh, that is my practice as well. Um, so, but that's, that's good to, good what framework around it. I like the point, you know, I don't infuse uh, lytics at maintenance uh, either. So very good. Well, Dr. Semler, thank you so much for joining at, at the bedside today. I think we picked up some really awesome learning points. Um, and I can't uh, wait to hear our listeners' responses to this. And uh, all the best to you. I hope you have a, a wonderful fall. Yeah, well, it was really great talking with you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for running the podcast. I hope people find it useful. And thanks to the ATS for supporting it. Great. Well, thanks everyone for joining us. And just a reminder that the views presented today do not necessarily reflect the views of our institutions nor the American Thoracic Society. And the case was presented for learning purposes only. So thank you so much. And we hope to see everybody next time.